A warm welcome into the Renewal Conversation today in the Renewal Nuggets. I'm Dr. Ioana Popa from Tea for the Soul, and I love the space between science, psychology, Christian faith, and spiritual care. And I love conversing with professionals who have had years of experience and practice in helping and serving and giving to others and holding the tension between giving to others and in the same time, finding ways to regenerate and renew so we can learn from their wisdom and from their nuggets off from a lifetime. So today our guest is Joel Klapak and he studied fine art painting at Asbury University. So that's how he started as an artist and a painter. And then he will talk about this. He worked in Romania for nine years and this is where we connected because we met years back because I'm originally from Romania and the stories he shared about how he served in Romania really, really touched me. He did a couple of things and he's gonna talk about it. On one hand, he helped children at risk and youth who are living on the street. And in the same time, he was holding painting exhibits in the local and guild galleries and designing and creating old paintings for the community center chapel. And in his professional life, he's a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, and he's been working in a college counseling center in central Kentucky. He also worked at community mental health, at state psychiatric hospitals, in detention centers, providing psychotherapy and skill training, and led workshops. And his passion is around empathy and compassion, so he's going to talk about that. And he also, uh, other topics for him that are very interest, uh, he's very interested in is how to bring empathy, honesty, and collaboration within the church, and especially at the Ocamper Conference. Ocamper is a professional organization, Orthodox Christian Association for Medicine, Psychology, and Religion, and Joel is a board member. And he wanted to share with our audience that he became Eastern Orthodox while living and working in Romania and has been on a parish council at his church. His church is St. Andrew Antiochian Orthodox Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And he loves to sing in the choir. And is you're going to really appreciate what he has to offer. So without any further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome to this Renewal Conversation, Joel. I'm so excited that you're here. I know we met for years at different conferences, and lately we've been in the same board on the Ocamper, Orthodox Christian in Medicine, Psychology, and Religion. There's so many other points of interest here, but I'm going to let you uh, introduce yourself and also bring a little bit of um, your interest to the table, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Welcome. Right. Well, thank you. Um, so how to introduce myself? That's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> um, so in the theme of caregiving, I guess I'll introduce myself as a caregiver. I'm currently a licensed marriage and family therapist and work at, um, in a small liberal arts college in Kentucky. Um, as I kind of think about my journey to being a therapist, um, I think I, I have to say it probably started as a as a kid watching Oprah Winfrey with my mother. No way, that's so cool. Say more about that. So she, my mom always, I mean, Oprah Winfrey is just very like caring about people and holding emotion. And I just found it fascinating. And my mom would also talk about things. We'd go watch movies together but she would unpack the meaning of the movie afterwards. So mm -hmm. I think it really helped me sort of think about people in a deeper way, even from a young age. Um, and my family just, I mean, my, my mom and dad both just had a very strong values for caring for people. Um, mm -hmm. Our family adopted three of my siblings. Uh, and that was, a, wow. that was something that the whole family was involved in. Um, and there so was this, beautiful, Joel. Wow. Yeah, there was a sense that we were in this together, um, kind of doing something in the world. And, and my family was a super Christian, charismatic family as well. So there was very much a sense of, you know, this is what it means to be a Christian, to really care for people. My house was the house uh, our friends wanted to be at. 
because uh. um, my parents really were welcoming and they would really be interested in, in them. Yeah, so I had a friend over at my house yes. and uh, I was getting ready to go with someone else. And I told my friend, like, we're going to leave now. And he said, well, you guys can just go. I'm going to stay here and talk to your dad. <laughs> that was that kind of family. Right, right. Um, That's just so, so yeah, so I just had a, a family that really valued caring for people. They knew they could ask my family to come live with us for a while. You know? Oh, that's so, so beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that it also has been a challenge for me as a caregiver, which maybe I'll talk about later, <laughs> you know, but uh, I really do value that um, our family really cared about people. How do we serve and love people? And that that was really a core piece of the faith that that they had and still have. My mom still is recently started a Celebrate Recovery group through her church to help people in all kinds of recovery situations, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, they've done prison ministry and all kinds of different, whatever they found throughout their lives, you know, they're still, they're still around trying to love and care for people. So I feel like my being a therapist now really, you know, naturally came out of that. I was, mm -hmm. I was also very interested in like, how can I care for and love uh, the other students in my high school? You know, so I was always made a point to be friends with the down and out kid, you know, the the 17 year old girl who was pregnant, nobody wanted to talk to her. I was talking to her, you know, so I just had a real, real desire to care for people in that way. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I'm wondering, I mean, as a family marriage therapist, as you're very familiar with the developmental stages and whatnot of, of kids growing up in a family, you know, we grow up in, in our families with our values. And at some point, we internalize them, and they become ours. So I wonder, what was it like for you? At one point, you knew, like, this is me. It might, could have happened really early or, or later. Yeah, it just, it just became I think probably when I was in high school, okay. uh, it really, as I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, it just felt like this is what matters. Hmm. This is what's important. You know, this is, uh, you know, money and wealth and fame and all that stuff, you know, just doesn't seem like it has the same kind of value as mm -hmm. just, just being with people and taking care of people and mm -hmm. uh, connecting with people. So. That's just so beautiful and inspiring. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. sharing. And then I know you did some work as well in Romania and maybe something else before. Do you want to walk us a little bit through that? I know a, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even as a, as a high schooler, um, I had this real kind of spiritual awakening and, you know, this a real sense that I needed to go out in the world and help the world. I ended up going to Russia for as part of my um, religious community at that time. Uh, spent five months in the polar night, um, but there was a there was a real sense of like I'm doing something real in the world. You know, probably watched too many Indiana Jones movies. You know, like I'm going to go out and do something real. Uh, you know, sense of adventure too. Um, but then I, I came back and went to college. I studied fine art painting okay. uh, and I met my wife uh, and we got married before our senior year of college. Um, and she also was interested in doing overseas work and had done some stuff in Colombia, South America. And so when we got together, we just really started trying to discern where we needed to be and right after college, we went to India for a month and a half and visited some folks there uh, who were working uh, in, in different settings in India. One was a children's home. Um, and it was just very meaningful. And we just, we liked, we through that, uh, we ended up in Romania okay. working with children at risk organization we were working with uh, only had one staff person there at that time. Um, 
And so, yeah, by, we were there eight and a half years and it was really kind of another extension of like, how can we care for people? Uh, and we focused on kids who were living on the street. We also partnered with organizations that focused on pediatric AIDS cases. Mm -hmm. um, this organization helped get kids out of orphanages and into homes. Um, and so, I mean, I was deeply moved by some of the videos that came out in the, I guess, mid nineties of Romanian orphans. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the kids we worked with, you know, were in orphanages earlier mm -hmm. on. Um, what you're sharing is so deeply moving because I'm originally from Romania and actually we did have a part of a physician rotations. We went in the hospitals and we actually visited also orphanages as yeah. well. So um, yeah, it was, it's very meaningful work. So actually thank you for jumping right in and being there to help because there was a, a big need. So thank you. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're just doing what we need to do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we did a lot of um, just meeting with kids on the streets, trying to figure out what we could do. We spent a couple of years just playing soccer every day with kids. I like, bet loved it. Just get your, get your lungs free of drugs and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then we would eat a meal together. And there was just something really beautiful about um just eating together and just being human, you know, that uh, was really lovely. Were you back then a therapist or not yet? So I was not a therapist okay. yet. And that, that is a big part of my journey was, uh, I mean, there was lots of things that kind of felt like a failure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I was in touch with someone through an online community who was an addictions counselor in North Carolina, he was actually the president of the Ocamper board for a time. Oh, and wow. he, he really made himself available to me to kind of ask questions and consult with. And um, I ended up taking a counseling class when we were back in the States having one of our children. And, um, and it began to just get my wheels turning. Like I, I really would like to have more training to be more effective with people, you know? And so I think we did a lot of good work, but um, some of the resources, some of the trainings we did were just super helpful. Um, we had, I was only in one, Romania, right? Yeah, in Romania, yeah. I was only one of a big team of about 20 people made up of Romanians and Americans. But at one point we had, um, we all went to a workshop on uh, working with kids with, reactive attachment disorder, love and logic, parenting, that kind of thing. We took all our staff to it and we just started implementing some of these things. And within a week, like the, the chaos in the center just really went down. You know, we, Unbelievable. we, started, we started doing things like uh, having kids do what we called strong sitting, which is basically like a five minute sitting meditation you know you just sit and be quiet for five minutes so they'd start their time at our center doing that and and just um the energy went way down and kids wow. were able to focus and the staff was able to manage things better and so just realizing like wow there's some tools out there that really can be effective and powerful so mm -hmm. that um, brought you to to do the training in, in marriage and family therapy? Yes, so when we came back from Romania, um, I did a master's in marriage and family counseling. And then after that, ended up doing some work in uh, Eastern State Hospital before I got a counseling job. And then I was in community mental health. And then after that, I moved on to the current job I'm in and I've been in for I guess I'm starting my eighth year now. Counseling, right? Yes. My college, yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I know I heard you speak at a, a camper event about the compassion research and the brain. It just dawned on me when you were talking about the kids, you know, just sitting for five minutes in quiet, how that calmed their system. And mm -hmm. um, actually, Father Anthony Hughes from St. Mary's in Cambridge 
was on last week and he was talking about his, uh, he just talked about it spontaneously, like his default way of being, of just being present in the present, you know, in the now. And I thought of you, um, and I don't know, maybe you can share a little bit about this intersection between psychological research and, and spirituality and how does that, I mean, you've seen that profound impact, right? Even with the kids and I'm sure with other people that you're working with. Would yeah. Like well, it's interesting. Uh, a researcher named Tanya Singer, who is uh, at the Max Planck, Max Planck Institute in Germany, she's, she does uh, social neurobiology research and basically putting putting people in an MRI machine, like two MRI, put one person in an MRI machine next to another person into another MRI machine. Okay. So, so they can actually watch two brains interacting at once. Uh, and so that's the, the social piece. So they can watch how their brains light up in relation to each other. Wow. So that's it, part of what they do. Um, and they're, they began to try to figure out how they could differentiate empathy from compassion. Mm -hmm. And they used uh, the Buddhist monk, Mathieu Ricard, who was also a uh, psychologist. And he, you know, the past 30 years or so been a Buddhist monk and does loving kindness meditations. Um, so anyway, they asked him to watch videos of war scenes in an MRI machine while they watched his brain. And they asked him to be in an empathic mode, just okay. empathizing with the pain of the people he saw. And after two hours, he was emotionally torn up and burned out. Mm. Uh, and then they asked him like, okay, now we want you to do the same thing, but in that loving kindness mode. And if um, we just stop for a second, is your sense that with the empathy that we're kind of the emotion or something energetically that we were taking on? Like, how do you... What's your understanding about the empathy piece and why it was so draining? Yeah, because I had also in clinical practice, and I'm curious yeah. what your experience is. So she she calls it empathic distress. Okay. Because um, sometimes when people talk about empathy, they're talking about compassion, so it gets kind of foggy. Oh, so, I'm so glad you're clarifying that because yeah. it's an important distinction, yeah. So empathic distress is really when we are encountering the pain of someone else but we are actually feeling our own pain mm. as we're seeing their pain so really really our own pain is being triggered God. when we're with somebody in that empathic distress mode and that's that's what tanya singer would say compassion fatigue is actually empathy fatigue yeah, so that's distress fatigue mm -hmm. with internal family system, right? It's the uh, which I mentioned here. I know you're you're very familiar in training in it. This idea that if I have exile or parts, so I have things from the past that are still active in me. It's kind of like that, right? I, I love your description. Exactly. Like I am feeling distressed while I'm witnessing someone else's distress, and that is empathic right. distress. Great, great def uh, nugget here. I hope yeah. that you, if you're multitasking, come back to this because this is an important distinction for many givers and caregivers. They, they get it. They're doing exactly this, what you're saying. Yeah. So, I mean, it really gives me a heart for therapists and helpers all over is that if we're in that mode of empathic distress with people, it is very kind and loving, but also we are being drained. Yes. So this is the beauty of what Tanya Singer found out when they put Mathieu Ricard in back in that MRI machine and had him be in that loving kindness place after two hours he was energized wow well and that's so kind of like the regeneration <laughs> renewal so do you want to unpack this right. a little bit there's a different way of being and kind of maybe even give a nugget to how people can do this yeah so so with that loving kindness there's some cognitive detachment Okay. And there's also some uh, kind of detachment emotionally, but it's not total. So there is empathy within compassion, um, but it's an empathy with a little distance. And so you can think of like what it's like if you have a small child that's learning how to ride a bike and they fall down, mm -hmm. right? 
you know like how that feels to fall down right but you're also kind of holding back because you don't know like did they really get hurt are they gonna what is it for them right so that little bit of space um is the kind of space that that compassion mode holds with people it's like i can be present to your pain but i don't have to be in pain as i'm present to it right. the compassion neurocircuit they found also uh touches in with the filial care circuit so there's like the this uh, connection we have between a parent and a child i think this is some mm -hmm. of my interpretation but it's like part of it's life-giving and energizing because i am helping my child to grow and learn and and move on and learn how to ride a bike and there's some connection to like the timeline of what i'm doing here with this other person right mm -hmm. so this filial care it, there's also some belonging in there so there's mm -hmm. there's some other pieces of compassion that are bigger they have healthy detachment and in the i'm uh, eastern orthodox and in our theology we have this idea of dispassion or uh, apatheia which is a similar thing it's like it's detachment so i'm not desperate to care mm -hmm. but i'm ready yeah you know, just like that parent with the child who's fallen you get what might be happening for the kid and you're ready to help but you're also not reacting so strongly that the kid cries because they're afraid of your reaction right right this is so important right so there is less of the draining of the energy but it's not a, a detachment like oh i don't care you can do whatever i'm fine here there's still that desire uh, and a more um balanced desire to help but if i don't help it's okay right is that what you're saying exactly exactly and you can see it around grieving a lot you know some people really struggle around grieving and they might try to offer condolence to the person who's grieving but actually they're suffering so much that the the grieving person ends up helping the person trying to console them yes, yes. right yes. so in that compassion mode there's enough kind of awareness of what's my stuff and what's your stuff so that i can be present to you without uh you feeling you got to take care of me yeah right. absolutely i can be what is this you know and i i deal with clients all the time who deal with grief or any kind of different mental health thing and just because they say that they know somebody who just died like i really don't know what that means for them mm -hmm. right so as a therapist that that space that detachment i'm like ready to help excited to help and be part but also I need enough space to really let it be their experience that mm -hmm. I can and be almost, helpful. Yeah, and almost like a separation, what I'm hearing there, which is so beautiful, like, okay, this could be my stuff. I'm not going to project it. And in the same time, kind of, I really don't know what the other person is experiencing. So not assuming, not projecting and be curious. Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. Their experience, yeah. yeah. And the, I love the internal family systems model because all this is built into the model. Yeah, do you want to speak a little bit more um, about that and what attracted you yeah. to the model? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about being a therapist is that there is this amazing opportunity to continue on your own personal growth path, mm -hmm. right? And IFS, internal family systems, like almost demands it. Um, I mean, you don't have to, but really to be a good IFS therapist, you need to really work with your own parts. You need yes. to work with your own therapist parts, yes. you know? And so for me, like coming from a family of helpers, people who want desperately to save the world, yes. right? That was one of the parts as a therapist I need to continue to work with. It's a beautiful part that wants to help, but also if the client is not ready or needing or asking for a certain kind of help i need to be able to calm my therapist parts that want to help down so i can make sure i'm matching uh, what the client's needing at the time mm -hmm. otherwise you know i know many clients in my 10 years of doing therapy have suffered me giving them really 
really smart lectures about <laughs> what they're suffering with, right? <laughs> Which they probably didn't want or need, right? <laughs> but yeah. my helper parts are just, mm -hmm. I just so want to help you. And I have some stuff that might be helpful. So I'm just going to throw it all at you. Mm -hmm. So IFS has really helped me as a therapist be on a journey of continually monitoring what's coming up for me as I'm trying to be present and notice what's happening for you and how can I sort of help you in your process. Right. And, nat and naturally, like in IFS, like as I ask some of my therapist parts to step aside, what's left over is self-energy in the IFS model. Mm -hmm. um, this compassion and care and curiosity. It's this compassion neural network. Yes, um, yes. And and, go ahead. I was just going to say this kind of thing are in different models too. Um, mm -hmm. polyvagal theory, you know, people are talking about ventral vagal being in ventral vagal. What are they talking smart, about? The smart Vegas. Yeah, we're in this heart place of the heart. We're in this compassion, curiosity place. And that's that mm -hmm. compassion neuro circuit that has enough separation, but is also curious and ready to help but not desperate to help. So it has this, mm -hmm. has this balance. And actually that place, being in that place can be so energizing. And I've with IFS has really helped me as a therapist to, I mean, I still struggle with it constantly, but being able more to be in that place of compassion mm -hmm. with clients who can be really distressed. And instead of being sort of sucked into their pain, which triggers my pain, right? Right, right. I can be in this place of compassion, which actually I leave the session with more energy. Yes. Rather than just feeling decimated. And would you say that by being in this present, there's some underlining assumption of trust that whatever access to your neurocircuit of sort, or so to speak, of brain compassion network that the other, the patient or the client, no matter how distressed they are, they can still have access to that? Would you say that that is a process? How does that help them, in other words? Because I could say sometimes I have clients and they're saying, but I'm in distress, do something. You have to fix me here, right? And there's something about the trust that I've experienced, but I'm not sure if that's your experience. I'm curious, how would you how would you name the impact that the you holding this presence has on the other? Yeah, well, I think it really allows you to uh, be much more effective. Um, it allows me to mm. sort of calm down and to sit back and to listen a little bit longer. Okay. You know, like, where is it that you're going with this? What does this mean to you? Rather than my fix it part coming in right away and Mm -hmm. uh, chipping away at this thing and they haven't really consented to that you know now all of a sudden i can i can calm myself down so that i can be more accurately present to what they're bringing into the room mm -hmm. um, and yeah i do i think that as i can be in that calm curious compassionate place the client can more easily get there too okay and i think it is kind of uh, infectious in a way Oh, I like that. Infectious. Because I think, you know, if for the listeners who might not be therapists, they might wonder, well, how can I apply this in my life? Obviously, if it's a life and death emergency, please jump right in. Don't just be pa patiently listening to, you know, if someone is in real emergency and crisis. But it seems to me that um, that could be applicable in day to day by just allowing to listen. There's a wave that kind of moves through. I know in... Um, grief recovery method, where um, it, which is an eight-week process for grief, moving people through completing emotions. We work with people in diets, and the listener is actually a coach to just listen with a heart with ears, they call it in grief recovery method. So mm -hmm. they don't say anything, and, they, and it's the beginning, this fixer part always comes in. But by the end, there's this realization like, oh my goodness, whatever it is in the other person, this compassion nervous system is calming down. This true self always shows up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. And this, as we can, as we can slow down and separate a little bit from these fix it busy parts, 
that true self or that compassion really does show up. And it's this is something that's very interesting to me is that, um, you know, Tanya Singer and her research, it's more about sort of unlocking and getting us into that state of compassion okay. rather than um, rather than trying to add it or teach it. Okay. So it's like we have this experiential level. We have this neuro this neuro circuit of compassion in us. Mm-hmm. And IFS really, that's one of the foundations of IFS is that we don't have to teach clients compassion. We help them find it. That's already there. And it's interesting in our Orthodox theology, we have this idea that this deep core of the human person is the image of God. Mm-hmm. And that as in this, in a process of kind of peeling back the layers of, of the passions in the Eastern language, you know, but we're talking or about activity, right? For activity, of emotions, yeah. anger, right. those kind of things, or helper parts, the same kind of thing. Like as in that tradition, as you peel back this thing, St. Isaac the Syrian used the term luminous love. Mm, oh, I love like that. There's this luminous love for all humanity, mm-hmm. you know, and so there's this, there's this, uh, beautiful, this beautiful resonance between those that, that actually, it's almost like we are made of luminous love, mm-hmm. that we get clouded over with all these emotions or passions or reactivity fear but as we peel back those clouds what we have is this luminous love it's almost as if we are made out of luminous love and if you're listening this is a time to just take this in this this sense is what if we are luminous love all of us at a core i think that's just so beautiful and so inspiring and it does make our life easier as we go through the day, right? That we don't have to work so hard all the time. That sometimes relying on this can be so much more beautiful. And I really love how you brought it in so many perspectives, like the all together and kind of pointing to the same thing. Yeah. I think any tradition that's looking hard and long at the human mm-hmm. condition ends up coming at some of these same kind of conclusions oh i really like how you phrased it yeah looking long and hard at the human condition and kind of encountering the reality it's going to discover similar things just call it maybe differently i think that's also so hopeful because in our society there's so many polarities you know if you're this you cannot be that and you're saying no maybe there's that foundation that is true and for all of us yeah Another one of the people that I've uh, been influenced by is a man named Marshall Rosenberg, who um, developed nonviolent communication. Yeah, I love it. And he he studied with Carl Rogers and got kind of uh, tired of the psychology world that he was in. He's a PhD in clinical psychology, and um, he was just feeling like there had to be more than what we had figured out. And he went and studied world religions. Okay. What else is there? And what he came up with was that the core of humans are these universal human needs that drive us. And they're Mm -hmm. otherwise known as values, you know, things like community and autonomy, freedom, um, transcendence, but also uh, sustenance and stability and mm-hmm. uh, all these kind of things, empathy and honesty. These are things that drive us mm-hmm. to become who we are made to become. And and he said that the core of all those human needs, the most essential human needs, according to him, was um, the need to contribute to the well-being of others. That is just so beautiful. I don't think Maslow had that in his pyramid. I mean, it's such a beautiful overlap. And if you, I, I love this. We did not talk. If you're listening to this, we did not talk ahead. But if you can see, here's one of my favorite books, nonviolent <laughs> communication, right here. We'll put it in the in the in the link uh, down so you can get it. Yes, yes. The need to contribute to the well-being of others. Well said. It's such a. It's just a beautiful uh, operationalized way mm-hmm. of saying compassion, right? 
Mm -hmm. And I think there's such a dilemma sometimes that I've seen and a polarity, right? In some circles, like in Christian circles, it's so, of course, we want to help others. Of course, we want to do everything we can and all the way to self-sacrificing and forgetting of our own needs and burning out and whatnot. And then you have sometimes in the therapy world, this idea, well, what's the reason for helping others? Maybe this is codependency or right, there's some labels against that that we need to be more self-actualized uh, or whatever, which is nothing wrong with that, but it almost feels like there's a two poles where what if there are not two poles? What if there is an indeed a need to help others? And there's a way to do that in healthy ways without either burning ourselves down or end up in troublesome relationships and whatnot. Um, yeah. I wonder, especially as a family therapist, you probably encounter that all the time. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. In the nonviolent communication way of thinking about things, there is selfishness on one side, Mm -hmm. and selflessness on the other side, right? And that's yes. kind of the polarity yes. you're talking about. But nonviolent communication would say we should have a place in the middle that's self-full. Uh, oh, I love it. So another way to think about it is that, you know, with selfishness, it's like I don't have room for other people's needs. Right, right. And in selflessness, there's no room for my needs. And so in nonviolent communication, if you're working with a family or community or society, even it's like, how can we make sure everybody's needs are on the table, including mine? Yes. Yeah. I'm a human being like everyone right. else. Yes. So nonviolent communication has this really beautiful, simple process of kind of how to interact. And one of the one mode is being in this empathic or compassion I'm really listening from my heart mm -hmm. and really trying to listen for your universal human needs yes. underneath whatever it is you're saying. Yes. The other side is like honesty, but being honest about what my needs are in the situations. And so mm -hmm. speaking from the heart, meaning speaking about my values that are in play here. So that's like the branches of the tree. And then the roots of the tree, when we go inside, we go inside and try to connect with what's really mattering for me right now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sort of what's right. mattering to them as I, as I listen to them, mm -hmm. as I speak to them, you know, so there's this uh, process of, so how, how can I get, how can I acknowledge my needs, name my needs um, and also acknowledge and name the needs of the other people right. here. Right. And then sometimes, even if I need to set my, my needs aside for the time, I've still honored them. Yes. And yeah. I make a plan yeah. for them, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not one or the other. It's one and the other, which is so similar in non-dualistic thinking in general or a third way, also Trinitarian way, you know, depending on the perspectives that you might be coming from. Or, um, yeah, psychosynthesis has this end this and that as opposed to this or that um, yeah. we could see it in many threads beautiful yeah and so i mean part of this part of the genius of nonviolent communication is it it gives you a process for going below the strategies yes and once we get to our needs or values underneath there then there are many many different strategies to meet everybody's needs you know yes. so yes. one example i use is like earlier in uh, my marriage, like Saturday morning, I'd be like 10 o'clock, I need to go here and do this thing, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, there's like conflict about who's going to use the car or whatever, you know. So now we put our needs on the table, which is like, what do you need to do today? What do I need to do today? And then how can we coordinate to make all that happen? Oh, that's so beautiful. I think if you're listening, that's just such a beautiful way to to think through and negotiate and have everyone's needs respected in a family. That is so beautiful. And also, if you're listening, there is a, if you Google it, there's a PDF for nonviolent communication, literally four steps that you could use as a family, as a couple, um, with friends, 
like, okay, here's what I want to say, but what is my emotion? I think you, you tell me if I got this right, Joel. What's my emotion underneath it? What's my need underneath that, the third layer? And underneath that, how do I make a kind request, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. How do I make a request based on the beautiful. need? beautiful. Yeah. That is so beautiful. And I'm wondering as we're, I mean, it's very beautiful um, to have the professional expertise and try it and whatnot. And it's also even better when we learn from personal experience as well. So I'm wondering how do you, I mean, you already gave some example with your wife, which I think was so beautiful. How do you also use all this to enhance your sense of presence, your sense of compassion? Like what are some of your daily practices that can inspire others to kind of take care of the different needs, right? From the mind level, body level, uh, emotional level, even soul kind of spiritual level. Like what are the things that you do either or yourself or with your family, however you wanna approach this? Yeah, so I mean, we've already mentioned internal family systems and nonviolent communication. Um, and like my family growing up was very other focused. Okay. And my position in the family as the second kid, I was also like the one who wanted to show up and take care of everybody all the time, you know? So it, I, working with my own caregiver parts, like I needed to figure out how to even know what I wanted or needed because yeah. I kind of learned not to ask that question. How did um, you do that? Any, any so, advice for the listener? Yeah, so I, one of the big helps for me was uh, using a nonviolent communication uh, self-empathy journal. Ooh, and it's, like a very, it's a very simple process, just like okay. you described a minute ago, Ioana. Um, I, you can, I can send you... Um, kind of a format for it but basically it's it's thinking about in this particular whatever situation i'm dealing with what are my thoughts what are my feelings what are my body sensations and then from that trying to figure out what are my needs in the situation you just write it all out and uh, sometimes if it's about a situation that happened or occurrence you might write about what I wish would have happened, what I might want to do different based mm -hmm. on now that I am more connected with my needs, but also there's space for thinking about what the other person's needs are. But it's it's just a journal and I have on the front front cover of it, I have my little format. Oh, I see. You just kind of glue it on it to remember. Yeah, I glue it on. Oh, that's then, brilliant. Then if I don't have anything distressing, I have a gratitude process. Okay. Oh. does a similar thing like what are my feelings and thoughts around this thing i'm grateful for and okay. what are my needs that are are feeling met you know those kind of things and on the back side of my notebook i have a wheel of universal human needs which is just a chart of okay. you know basic universal human needs but really if you just ask the question why does this matter to me enough times you will land on a universal human needs mm, um, and so right. so that process i did that for a while and that was really helpful just to That's take fun. time to focus on what is it what is this meaning for me how why does this matter to me what is important to me in this situation so just those kind of things so that was kind of nonviolent communication and then um, internal family systems has really helped go even deeper and more nuanced into like what's coming up for me, especially in the therapy room, but also maybe in my family life, you know, as you have kids that grow older, your different kids will trigger different things in you. And it really, sometimes it has very little to do with the kid and more about your own stuff coming up. So for me, like being able to have a process, I actually have a, a friend and we just sort of trade uh, practice sessions with each other and uh, mm -hmm. you know we just work with especially our therapist parts that are coming up but sometimes other things mm. if they're feeling like they're showing up but that's a real way that I've been able to really get more in touch with what are my parts that are suffering where are my vulnerable places that are being triggered what are my places that are scared when clients mm. show up angry you know what what right. are those things and so 
as I can attend to those parts of me that have been suffering, then I can show up with more confidence and more calm and not, not get sort of sidetracked out of that curious, compassionate place. And I can just stay there easier. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is the sense of staying with yourself, staying with your needs. Like there's this fundamental idea that there are universal human needs. And I would imagine even the need to be seen, the need to be appreciated. Sometimes Christians were so fast to say, oh, I'm so proud. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we're not proud at times through behaviors and whatnot, but there is a universal need to be seen, to be appreciated, to be loved. So I'm hearing you're saying journaling, that could be of help and really think through the layers. Okay, what, what am I needing right now? Um, And I, it would like, I don't know if you're feeling comfortable sharing your PDFs, we can put them in the link. Sure. I, I can yeah, cut I can. that. Okay. Um, so then you can use some of that as a listener. The other thing that I'm hearing is uh, some sort of a reflection, but also uh, journeying with someone, maybe a good friend or a mentor that has a, a way, you have a way to mirror, you have a way to support each other and go into those tender places and have some your your compassion and someone else's compassion in that is that is that fair oh, to say? yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's been life giving and and actually that that friend is also a running partner and so oh you're we, running. Have, we ran for three or four years together and then some other people came and now it's anywhere between six and ten or twelve people that show up three days a week to run together and so that mm-hmm. kind of constant through the week companionship and we'll run with different people, different times, but mm-hmm. something yeah. about that connecting and running with someone, you know, we're not in this alone. Yes. yes. So also taking care of your physical body on a regular basis for you running is really important. And I, I love what you said about also being in community, having a community, even if it's small, it can grow, but having some sort of community to really build on that and move to work and, and, and share this experience. That has been yeah, great. absolutely. And I do have a, I also have been on the board of our church, our local okay. uh, Eastern Orthodox church. Um, and there is something uh, about being in the sanctuary mm. week after week. And if you've never been into an Orthodox sanctuary, uh, I recommend doing that. That was uh when i was in romania we would take visitors to the cathedral in our town in romania and uh, we had there was floor to ceiling uh, icons on frescoes uh, this iconostasis that's kind of the screen between the altar and and the people was like 50 feet tall and gold and full of icons and just unbelievable and the there was a seminary choir that would sing in the choir loft and there were 12 priests that served with the bishop and oh wow <laughs> they might they may have had administrative gifts but they definitely had uh singing gifts uh it was just unbelievable um but just i i can remember one time in particular when i think one of the kids who we worked with on the street had died and it was just a devastating time for all of us um, just such a sense of injustice and just that whole problem of evil and how to, I mean, this, the death of children is, you know, the worst, one of the hardest things for us to deal with. Um, and I can just remember just being so burdened and down and depressed and just dealing with this. I mean, not just him, but this whole, uh, the injustice of all the kids that he represented, you know, um, and I had like a half hour walk to where we worked at and the cathedral was on the way. So I had a few extra minutes. So I slipped in the back of the cathedral and uh, there was a, a priest praying a, a service for people who had passed away um, with some family members in the kind of in the front of the church. And I went, I mean, the entry near the entryway of the church. And I went up towards the altar of the church and they have seats along the outside. And um, I just was overwhelmed by the sense that this completeness and within the Orthodox church, there's also the Christ 
like crater, panto crater in the top and it the, paint, the whole the scheme icon. goes down all the way to local Romanian saints. And then you have the people there, you know, so there's this whole uh, kind of symphony of relationships. And, com um, and completeness. Is and completeness, yeah. And it was almost like uh, in bringing into that space this grief from losing this kid, um, it was almost like uh, I had the sense, not that it was okay, mm -hmm. but that it would all be made right in the end. Mm. It was almost like the cathedral, the the perfection of the cathedral was almost like tasting the end. Like mm -hmm. things will be made right, you know, just as you uh, can see it and hear it mm -hmm. in the space. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you walk back out and you trip over a a dog in the street and whatever. back to the 3d world yes right so yeah but that's been an important thing for me to be able to kind of have that sense of the big picture that yeah. i am that i am just a small part of something much bigger than me mm -hmm. and whether i've been in religious groups or non-religious groups um it's amazing just to be a part of folks that are just have this deep compassion and love and just want to see healing, want to see reconciliation. You know, that I think as a caregiver, just to know like that you are not alone doing this stuff, yes, regardless yes. of spiritual beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, like there are, you're part of uh, many, many, many people who are working together oh, yes. to make things um, better so mm -hmm. and would you say that part of your regeneration and renewal practices involves this contact with this larger perspective the sacredness and the this sense of communion yeah absolutely and i i don't there's something missing if i'm not connecting with those sacred places mm -hmm. um, i do also as part of my uh my regular practice i i try to do a prayer rule um, and part of that is using prayers from my church um, but also uh, just trying to spend about 20 minutes in silence um, and really allowing that time to get grounded um, i also continue to make art and so um, when i'm able when I'm able to do it, I also try to do life drawing for 30 minutes to an hour. And that might be like drawing a tree, but I'm not worried about trying to stylize a tree or make something cool. It's like, no, I just want to be fully present to this thing that's with that I'm looking at right now. And so it really is a very grounding meditative practice. And I mean, I've in our theology we believe that god is uh, filling all things that he is everywhere filling all things and so whether it's sitting with a person or sitting with a tree if we're quiet enough and slow enough and uh looking like we get this experience of something bigger than ourselves yes yes and i so appreciate what you're saying and for me contemplative practices and silence is also important do you have any um, nuggets to suggest to someone, let's say, who haven't tried contemplative practices or sitting in silence or whatnot, that how to get it started? Anything that helped you? Um, uh, what I found actually is I, I ran into some people at my work who were doing um, kind of mindfulness meditations. And so they they helped. And as I began to do some of those silent meditations with a group, I realized like, why does this feel so familiar? And what I realized was that it was very, very much like life drawing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went back, I was like, oh, this is exactly what this is, you know? I was wondering about that. It's almost like your life drawing is part of your prayer rule. It is. Yeah. And so- that's so beautiful. I do think it's helpful to know that you can do active things mm -hmm. that also 
clear your mind. Uh, one of the drawing practices I like is doing uh, blind contour drawings, which is basically where I don't even look at the paper. So I may have a pen or a pencil and I'm only looking at the tree or the couch or whatever it is. And I'm just drawing without looking, but what, without looking at my paper, right? Yes, yes. And so you just, sometimes it just looks like a bundle of wire on your page, you know, but, but really what you've done is you've kept your hands busy while you're paying close attention to something. Yes. Um, and it, it's very uh, sort of grounding. And mm. I like to I use that kind of thing in some of my paintings as well, but. Um, I think that's just so beautiful and it reminded me um, of the Orthodox Christian Eastern Orthodox tradition about Jesus prayer and using beads so you do something with your hand and in the same time you get into this contemplative silent place and I in the renewal in action program that I have uh, is this idea that and you might appreciate this that when we're active, many times we're in our sympathetic system, right? Fight or flight. And when we're relaxing, we're in this vagus, nervous vagus system, the parasympathetic relaxing. And in our day-to-day, -day, such a big separation. And actually it doesn't. I think through people who are doing lots of this contemplative practices or even athletes when they're in flow, they experience this symbiotic existence between the relaxing trusting opening kind of way of being and being active and just reminded me that because that's a beautiful place to be in integrating all of us and almost uh connecting to what you said earlier about the default nervous system compassion nervous you know, almost like we're meant to be that way and we're we're trying to keep reconditioning our flight or fight you know nervous system to to trust that actually there is something larger and bigger. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought the art in it because yeah. I mean, that's your study. And I was wondering how you use art in your, uh, in your day to day. That's I, I, think, I think it's interesting too. I mean, talking about creativity, but if we, I mean, from the internal family systems perspective, but also Eastern Orthodox spirituality, if we really think about what is that we're, we're left with when we're not afraid mm. we don't have these passions and it's connectedness and community and creativity like if we're not worried all the time what do we do yes, yes. stuff isn't that cool that's a great question to kind of as we're moving towards the end of this conversation to really think as a listener like yeah who am i if i'm not worried all the time and I don't have to live in fear. And obviously we cannot, I mean, there are situations that could be life-threatening and there are situations of suffering, real suffering and whatnot. And either way, what if there is a way to be in that with more trust and more connection um, and sense of centeredness? Yeah. Yeah, I think it takes, it takes a lot of work on connecting with yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to stay connected with yourself while you're in uh, another situation you know where there is great need right yeah. so i think that's the challenge for the caregiver is how do i not lose touch with where i'm at and where my capacity is at and how i'm feeling what what parts are being triggered here? Am I okay in this space? Do I need to pull back so I can attend to what's happening in me for a while? Because um, sometimes our level of healing and growth is is not matching the level of the situation. <laughs> so mm -hmm. sometimes we need to step back and do some of our, our own work. Like yes. I was working with a client and uh, it, this client had some stuff come up that was very like feeling abandoned mm -hmm. and the anger that came with that really triggered some of my own stuff and made me kind of freeze mm -hmm. and i was really not able to stay present and then she felt abandoned by me and so then i had and she ended up getting another therapist 
and it's okay because I needed to go back and do some more of my work so that I could stay present mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Some of my own stuff came up that needed some more work. And so I think it's, I think it's good to know, like it's, it's okay to not be ready to deal with any situation ever, you know, but. Right. And I just, the fact that we are imperfect, we are imperfect and we can understand our limitations and, and, uh, use that as a way to further growth yeah thank you for sharing that yeah and as we wrap up i'm wondering said again i would say we are perfect we just need to uncover that <laughs> <laughs> yes deep down we, are we um, were made really good <laughs> we are made really good and in the process right we're as you said kind of shedding away i like that idea that that way of removing to well, uncover the yeah. profession yeah and we're putting our own needs on the table too right i may have a need for some more healing and more growth before i'm ready to yes to be able to help my client with their healing and growth mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. very good and joel as we wrap up are there any any projects that you're currently really excited about anything coming up for you that you like to share because share with the listeners um so I am involved with Ocamper and the Ocamper community. We have a, a conference coming up in November. So I have another project that I'm working on that kind of brings together some of my worlds. I'm going to present at a symposium about the artist, uh, George Rouault, um, and kind of coming at looking at him from the clinical psychology perspective and also from an Eastern Orthodox perspective and, and how these things converge and some of these kind of these these themes of looking at people with kind of this compassionate vision mm -hmm. um, and some of those sort of healing elements that this artist uh, sort of came upon because of how he uh, made his work. So anyway, I'm very excited about that. That's in September. Um, okay, so it's coming up very soon and then the yeah. other one uh, a little bit later. That is so cool. Very cool. And before we wrap up, really wrap up, any other nuggets or for people who are giving, they have a passion to help others, how to stay present, how to regenerate, how to, any other tidbits? Not that you have to, I'm just curious. I want to make sure we make this round and <laughs> complete for today. Yeah, I just, I just, um, I'm not sure what, what to say, but I just, <laughs> I just feel so full um, knowing that I'm not alone and that there are so many other people who just really care and that that actually, I guess maybe this is the nugget, that being a caregiver doesn't have to mean uh, you being diminished. Mm. That actually being a caregiver that is healthy and whole can mean that you actually become more alive and more energized. So there is a way if you can find one of one of the many ways to get there. But I just I just want people to have that vision that you can be yes. a therapist or a doctor or caregiver and find a way to work with your own stuff so that you can actually be energized and full of life mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's right or you might be a parent at home or you might be working in business or uh, i don't know in a supermarket the the place doesn't matter but your what i'm hearing you say this desire to help this desire to give and care for others does not have to diminish us but we can actually grow and become even more full uh, oh, I think that's so beautiful. And I think the other thing that it was uh, that you shared is that we're not alone. That there's actually a lot of people out there. So there's so much hope for humanity. I think as I'm having this conversation, it's yeah. like, oh, it's so beautiful that there are people that really, really genuinely care for this and they are passionate. So, oh, thank you so much, Joel, for yeah. the sharing and conversation. And thank you for what you're doing and, and collecting uh, ways of helping these caregivers. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Joel, for all this richness and your wisdom from your professional and personal life experience. And I hope as a listener, you really took so many nuggets away and got inspired of this sense of you're not alone. We are together in this. There are many, many people who love to give, who love to care for others in so many ways. And I hope you get inspired. I hope you continue to give and you find ways to regenerate and renew because the world needs you regenerated and renewed and full of, of passion and joy and energy. And this is as well my last reminder that if you're interested in the Renewal in Action pilot program for Christians, where you can learn to regenerate and renew to live a prayerful daily life and also access this energy and joy on a day-to-day basis by integrated body, mind, what, what I mean by my thoughts and emotions and uh, true self, your soul, your image of God, there is a regeneration blueprint that can be very helpful and can help you navigate life no matter how busy the season. And this blueprint is flexible enough that no matter how busy you are or you have all the time in the world, you can take care of your needs. You can really regenerate in a fruitful way. And in the same time, it provides a daily structure. So you're always assured that you are on the right track as you're regenerating so you can help world in Christ. So with that, I thank you for being in this year space and I say goodbye for now.